before we end our conversation today, Dr. Mays, I would love to play this little game with you called Penny for your thoughts. Are you open to that? Sure, sure. Love it. Awesome. These are some quotes from different leadership books and leadership theorists, I'll call them, from now till present. And I would just love whatever strikes your fancy when you hear these things. So mm -hmm. the first one that I got here is a quote and it says, trying to design the perfect plan is the perfect recipe for disappointment. I love it. And it, not only the perfect plan, but the individual who designs the perfect plan is a perfectionist, right? Somebody who learned, who grew up, right? And their software became that to make mom or dad happy, be the perfect little child, right? To always outperforming, always making people happy, always being ultra responsible. Those, I, I find there's some success drivers for particular individuals that they set the bar so high that there's no way to achieve it. And the hard thing is they're often the most critical on themselves as well. So often we'll see these in the same individuals will be uh, paralyzed by a fear of not wanting to make any mistake at all. And sometimes decisions don't get made for fear of the mistake. So the old 80-20 rule, uh, I think, rules here. 80% is enough, drive forward. 100% is great and it never happens. Mm. Love it. And that was by Patrick Lencioni. Uh, so marvelous oh, yes. commentary. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then this one's really interesting. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on this one. The quote is, nice girls don't get the corner office. I, I work with a great CEO that revealed to me, she told me, you know, when she grew up, it was the era of pretty is as pretty does. And your job is to, you know, you always had to look good, always had to be on, always had to be amenable and pleasing. And it was interesting. She told me she would get so angry that she would cry. You think about the power of that. It may not be immediately apparent, but a guy is not, is taught never to cry. The woman, she was taught in her environment that the vulnerable emotions were okay, but it's not okay to demonstrate that strength. We have four letter words for women or five. Uh, we have you know words for women who, strong women, they're not considered favorable in many ways. Where a, a guy who demonstrates softness or vulnerability is seen negative. So just recognize that the context of our culture says so much. And so, yeah, there's so much training that we get just based on our culture that we lose free will. Yeah. And does do nice guys not? What do they say? Nice guys finish last. It's kind of what they, they're saying. But more yeah. than that is females who are who are driven. And I go back to this is no more than leadership style we're talking about. Great. Doesn't matter what those drivers are. If they're not getting you the result you need, regardless of how you feel about it, then it's important to be able to expand yourself, expand your comfort zone and do the thing. Because it's a shame for the country if we don't, we don't have enough women leaders. We don't have enough female leaders. And when you look at the, the political landscape and the business landscape, it's a very testosterone filled, um, aggressive landscape. That's not good. It's not balanced. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have more of a voice of, of reason out from the uh, 
of feminine persuasion. So I ramble, but I think there's really uh, a good, good stuff. That's a, there's a lot to unpack in that one statement. Absolutely. And I, I really appreciate your perspective and I'm going to share mine. It's interesting that this quote was by Lois P. Frankel and, and the way her name is written on the book, cause it's a, it's a book, Lois P. Frankel, comma, PhD. I even find that titling very interesting. And I don't have the exact publication year on me, but I believe that this was a text that was published in, in the 80s or early 90s. So definitely a different period in terms of ideas of the workplace and the public and private mm-hmm. sphere, particularly from the female perspective. And if we're thinking about, okay, if the book was written around those time periods, who were the influential women in history? And, you know, the dates might be a little off, but the, but the, the figure that comes to mind for me is Hillary Clinton, who was mm-hmm. elevated as a woman to one of the highest positions, which was to be first lady, which is already, we'll call it a job title, a very gendered job title in the sense that there's literally the word lady in it. And then if you look at the history of that administration, there also becomes this unmistakable and unforgettable intersection between personal and professional life, because you have an affair that takes place, an extramarital affair that seems decidedly private, but it occurs in the workplace, within the confines of the White House, an institution of government. So that that's me rambling, but that's just usually what comes to mind when I think of this period. And from my personal experience, I remember I was told, especially in the work I do in human resources, that it was really important not to develop what some people have called empathy fatigue. And it was explained to me early in my career that, hey, Kareen, it's really great to be nice. It's really great to be, you know, X, Y, and Z, compassionate, thinking about other people's feelings. But you have to watch that because you're going to get exhausted and then that's going to turn into something else. And the way I felt at the time when I received that advice, it was from someone that I respected and I appreciated it and I definitely took it in. But I also, I frankly felt hurt because I I did feel that that was my true personality and I wasn't trying, I didn't have an agenda for being that way. It's mm-hmm. just the way that I am naturally and um, I'm careful to modulate it in, in especially mm-hmm. in a cultural context. So for example, I come from a Filipino culture where effusive declarations of affection are allowed, but that's very different than say the Japanese culture that I, that is also a part of me where there's decidedly less expression of affection. And so taking this advice from a mentor where they said, don't say things like, oh, I'm happy to do it for you. Or there were phrases that I was told to not say. There were ways in which I was coached to write emails that removed a lot of my personal energy, I would say. And I think as I grew in my career, I saw how that mentality could develop and flourish. And it became my purpose to counteract that advice because it felt very stifling for me because I know who I am. One of the things talking about Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton, pardon me. um, One of the perceptions that came out when she was running for president, a lot of people didn't like her all of a sudden. I don't, I never knew a person, you know, she, I didn't hear a lot of vocal 
this about Hillary before that, when she was running for president, though, it was very loud and they didn't like, I think it's some of the same qualities. She's playing in a man's world and she's wearing the pants, right? She's behaving in a man's world and it doesn't fit our model of what a woman should do. She should acquiesce. And I think that's part of it. I think part of it is the cultural milieu that we've created here in our nation that when somebody's stepping outside of that role, even though that's what needs to happen in order for them to be effective, it's looked down upon. It's mm -hmm. real quagmire. Yes. And we need to have a whole other separate conversation <laughs> on the figure, the myth, and the person, Hillary Clinton, because mm -hmm. definitely a fascinating figure. And for me, because she she does tend to be a controversial figure in the United States, in our society, I tend to become much more intrigued with her, I'm going to call it her womanhood, if I may, um, because the parts of her that I connect with are decidedly non-political. Um, I connect with her mm -hmm. on the basis of wow, can I imagine that heartache? You know, wow, the strength to remain with your husband in spite of, mm -hmm. you know, complete personal devastation. How do you deal with it when you don't want to be rude or antagonistic because you have this job? This is a job. First lady is a job. Mm -hmm. Did she, was she elected by the American people? No, but it is a job. There's so many complexities to her that I think that deserve more examination. So that'll be a separate show. So this is a, a brief one, but earn your leadership every day. I've heard the question, great leaders are born or are great leaders made? And 100% great leaders are born. Everybody's born, right? But leadership is a skill that you can continually grow. It's a craft. It's uh, you can some naturally uh, through our, you know, their own hard wiring, how they come into the world. Some naturally seem to have more of a tendency to be able to inspire others. Others learn that, but it can be learned. That's the beautiful thing. And it can be learned, but it must be practiced. Yeah. Every day you can't rest on your laurels. You have to consistently, especially when you think about creating you know, I was reading Edgar Schein, uh, Edgar Schein, Sheen, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, the <laughs> forefather of, of culture and organizations, right? I love his work. Talking a lot about the most important role of the executive is to create culture. The number one thing, creating culture. How do you do that? How do you create the culture? And it comes back to how you actually behave because that sends echoes throughout the organization. And that starts with how you think. And how you think is part part of our hardware and part of our software, right? We we kind of come into the world with our with a brain, but we don't have the programming, the software, and we develop that. So I see so many people, you know, I watch my children, my oldest child has natural leadership qualities, just so happens he's the oldest child. Funny how that works. And he's has more responsibility. He's taking care of others. So part of his DNA is being formed as if you can form DNA, uh, part of his, his patterning is being formed right now as he's grown up with a younger sibling. Doesn't mean that the younger sibling couldn't be a great leader as well. It's just a different learning path. We've got to make a commitment to become better, to not just, you know, it's weird in our society, too, that there's a model that you go to school and then you're done. 
and then your learning's done. There, you've arrived. That's not it. You've got to continually make a commitment to grow, to become better as a leader, and to practice that consistently. That's how the influence happens. So I love the quote. Yeah, you got to do it every day, consistently, every every moment. You have to be thinking like a leader. You have to be a leader. Yes. Yes. And that's a case to definitely contact May's leadership, number one. But number two, I, I love that you responded in the way you did, because that's a quote by Michael Jordan. And so in mm. the context of basketball, it's interesting because one, you know, one might say, oh, well, you're done after age, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But Michael Jordan continued on with the with the Hornets, um, transformed that organization, and he continues to make huge waves as, as a leader in different spheres of influence, especially business. So I, I love that. And another side comment is, I was born as a youngest child, then I became a middle, <laughs> then I became an oldest, then I felt a lot like the only. So that's also a topic for another time. All right, so this one is, Leadership is the art of getting someone else to do something you want done because he or she wants to do it. No, it's interesting because I'm a wordsmith in my head. So leadership I is the added art of or she. It just like uh -huh, he. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. But, but leadership is the art of getting somebody uh, to do something that you want done uh, in a way that they want to do it. Yes, precisely. The the only you know the the problem I have with that statement is that leadership isn't necessarily about doing what you want. Leadership is about doing what needs to happen in order to move forward. And sometimes it's like mm -hmm. I go to the dentist. I don't want to have somebody drill a to uh, drill a hole in my tooth and fill a cavity. I don't want that. But that's what needs to happen sometimes. So again, I go back to what lead, what we want to do are things that feel comfortable. What we want to do is things that make us feel good. What we want to do is things that make us look good. And so that the, the beginning of that statement, I would seriously challenge. It's not about doing things that we want. It's about doing things that are for the greater good, whether if it's mm. a, or, uh, of an organization. And maybe sometimes when things are for the greater good, it might run counter to what I would want. So many times though, I've seen leaders come together an executive team and they don't put down what they want. They make a decision, but everybody still is clinging to what they, they want, even though that's not what the group decided on. And the thing they decide on then never gets any traction. It becomes a, a exercise in futility because individuals aren't able to let go of their idea. Hmm. I am so excited to tell you who said this. You didn't know this ahead of time. I completely ambushed you with it. But when you find out who said this, it's it's quite a intriguing commentary on our society. It was Eisenhower. What do you think of that? Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. My my answer changes every day. But a question I often like to ask people is who their favorite, which is a very particular word choice, who their favorite mm -hmm. president is. I can never pick just one, but there was a period of about three months where I was walking around saying Eisenhower was my favorite, just because I knew a lot of people would challenge me. <laughs> and it was interesting because I, I got a lot of challenges for that response. Even though he was also accompanied, I would say it's Eisenhower, Teddy Roosevelt, and GWB. 
which struck out like a lot of conversation and they would always mm-hmm. go, why Eisenhower? That was like, that was a terrible time. And I, and I just think, well, I'm appreciative because I really respect the, the office of the presidency. Mm-hmm. I'm appreciative that Eisenhower had the courage to occupy that position because who knows what might've happened if he did not. But it's interesting hearing the semantics of his, of his language choice and how that may or may not have affected the perception of his overall effectiveness and his leadership. So thank you for that. That was fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Last one. Oh, but please, what, what are your thoughts on that? No, no, I, I love it. I love it. It's a very, uh, it says a lot that it was Eisenhower. Yes. Yes. And God bless him. Like I said, for me, I, I, I asked one person that I said, who's your favorite president? And this person's response was whoever it is right now. And I said, that's a good answer. And I, uh, but, but I've defaulted to all of them. I like to say all of them because I'm very proud of my country. And even if I don't agree with leadership decisions, I think it's important for me as, as a leader myself to know what the greater good is. And for me, that's, that's unity ultimately. Okay. We're going to close with this one. Leadership and learning are indispensable to each other. Yeah, it's a great one to close with. I mean, they are in many ways, you can't have one without the other. You can have, yeah, I mean, learning requires self-leadership to actually pick up a book, to watch a, some, a video, a TED Talk, other than just scrolling through the ridiculousness on Facebook, actually learn some content, learn something that makes you better, that requires a certain kind of discipline within yourself, leadership it requires. And similarly, leadership, if you're going to help others elevate, requires you to continually grow and to learn and to to upgrade your own software. You came into the world, you created your great DOS programming, it helped you survive, and now here you are decades later playing out the same pattern, the same software is in charge. It's time for an upgrade. And that upgrade happens through what you, who you associate with, what you listen to, what you watch, what you read, all of these things you're learning, your ability to have an open mindset. It is absolutely key. It's not key to having power. It's key to leading. And there's a different, there's a huge difference there. You can have power and be a disaster. We see that happening in different countries and different companies around the world. There's people who somehow managed to make it to the top who don't really understand what leadership is. They often operate more as tyrants. But true leadership, yeah, without learning, doesn't exist. Great quote. I love it. Do you know who said that? No idea. Before I give it away, I'm delighted by your response because <laughs> this figure who, who said this is perceived, I would say, so differently than Eisenhower. And they're both presidents. So it's intriguing when we think about how word choice, that's not a behavioral trait, although some people perceive it to be one. It mm-hmm. is something that can be learned. And so when I when I reveal who said this, we might be tempted to say, oh, well, let's compare him to Eisenhower now. But I think that would be faulty because the person who said this quote was John F. Kennedy. Um, oh, Yes. I think that's a good place to close. Nobody has a handle on it, right? It's uh, leadership. I go back to what I said earlier. It's that the absolute spiritual discipline. If you're going to be a leader, it requires a lot of self-reflection, 
learning, uh, taking your own inventory, developing presence, developing awareness, being intentional, getting out of your own way, not being a hedonist, don't react to how you feel, but truly being a visionary that you, that is that you make decisions that move towards some larger vision and that it brings people along. That's powerful. And if it's, you know, I believe, you know, really quick before we end, you know, it's interesting having studied different forms of meditation for a long period of time. One of the foundations they talk about is morality. You can't have, because it's all about having a balanced, calm, open state of mind. And if you're doing something that is agitating your own mind, which is the precursor to doing something that agitates somebody else. So if you're out raising hack about your views and somebody else is wrong, you're going to have an agitated state of mind that's going to upset your own calm clarity, your own insight, your own wisdom, and being able to make sure you're carving time to be able to be in that placid state of self-possession is key to go back to the coffers, drink from the well, make yourself the best version of yourself. To me, that is the key starting point of a great leader.